Well, welcome to Susquehanna Valley Church. My name is Matt, and I get to serve as senior pastor here. Uh, we are thrilled to have you with us this morning, and I'm especially excited for this time of year. I'm not sure if you know this, but November coming up, November is my favorite month. Absolutely my favorite month. And it's not even because of Thanksgiving. It's not because of football. It's not because of hunting or the weather. November is my favorite month because it's No Shave November. Now, for the uninformed person out there, No Shave November is when starting in November, you don't shave for the entire year. Yeah, I, I, at least that's how it is in my book. I, some people say, you know, for the month, but I go by the year, so then just next year I get another No Shave November, and we just keep going. Honestly, like, people keep coming up to me, and they're like, how long is the beard going to get? And I'm like, I don't know. I, it just keeps growing. I don't know. I had a little girl come up to me the other day and say, Jesus? I feel like that's good for my job. I don't know. Like, it's just a, it's an easier connection to say no, but I know him, so we could talk about that. So I, I, I just I wanted to start out fun because, like, this series, The Search for a King, in, in our context of politics, it's, it's heavy stuff. And we forget sometimes that as we, de- we, we kind of dive into the depths of the heaviness that we've got a king. We have Jesus Christ. And we've got so much going on, and you're going to hear so much mudslinging. You're going to see so many ads that are fear-based. You're going to see so much stuff in the next week and one week and a half. And I just want your heart to just, just latch on to this idea that Jesus Christ is your king. I actually have chosen to memorize a short psalm that if I can trust in God, who should I fear? And every time I see a political sign or a political ad, I recite it. Every time I'm driving, so like I've got that one down. I've got it down. Every time I see it, because I remind myself who my true king is. What we've tried to do in this series is really, really to kind of, in a sense, look at from, from this like 50,000 foot view, what the scriptures teaches about human government so that we don't fall into the same patterns that, that people fell into again and again and again. And really what we've done as a preaching team is kind of lay out some like spider webs to catch behaviors, to catch beliefs that God doesn't want to, to be in our lives. And, and so we look at it, we look at it and we say something like, it might be, your heart might be prone to hope in a leader more than you hope in God. Because if we do, if we hope too much in a human king, then we fall into idolatry. I mentioned how many ads are fear-based. You might be prone to live in fear of what humans can do to you, where Jesus comes along and he says, don't fear what man can do to, to your body. Fear what God can do to your soul. And he goes on to offer an invitation for us to have faith and, and have salvation for our soul. So what, what God doesn't want us to do is to buy into everything that's going on in our society. And, and for us to be able to look and say, God, what is it that you want me to have here? Not to be a person who buys into the, to the great divide of America where I, I like or I don't like you based on who you're going to vote for. But instead, I'm going to be a person who loves, who genuinely loves even the people that I disagree with who are different than me. See, I, I think as, as we look at this, uh, I think God's calling us to be a person of character, to be a person uh, of love in any season, in any season. We're going to talk about that. I think stability is important. I think stability is huge for us, and I want us to get to the place where no matter what's going on politically, no matter what's going on in in our government or any world leader situation, that we can find stability. We've been doing this primarily by looking at the book of Kings. 
Last week, Eric did an incredible job looking at King, King Uzziah. Before that, we were looking at the, really the split of the nation of Israel under the reign of King Rehoboam. What I want to do this morning is actually, is actually look at the other half of that split. So, so if you remember, you've got, you've got the nation of Israel was 12 tribes. Solomon, the great King Solomon, passes away. And when he does, the nation is going to split into two. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is going to take the southern two tribes. And there's a man named Jeroboam who is going to take the northern ten tribes. Now, if you read the book of Kings, there are not many kings who end up being good kings. In fact, it's quite, quite the stark statement when all of a sudden it's, 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 it's surprising. It's a shock statement when you see, and they were a good king. And they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. If you're reading through the book of the Kings and you get to that, it's like, wow, there can be a good king. This is amazing because so many are bad. But while many are bad, few go from zero to 60 as quickly as Jeroboam. Jeroboam, the leader of the 10 tribes to the north, I mean, he's not even in office for much time at all before he, he institutes national idolatry. It's fascinating how quick this turns. We're going we're to look at it. We're going to look at the reason for, what, for it. But I want to kind of look at Jeroboam's origin story. You've got Jeroboam, who uh, before he's king, he, he is in Solomon. So Solomon's still alive. And Solomon has, is requiring the northern ten tribes to, to do forced labor to complete building projects for, for the palace. And, and so um, what happens is Jer- Solomon puts Jeroboam over top of those ten tribes. Jeroboam proves himself a worthy leader. He's much respected by the people under his command. And and Solomon starts to see that Jeroboam has a path to the king, path to the throne. And so he tries to have Jeroboam killed, and Jeroboam escapes, and he flees to Egypt, where he lives until Solomon is no longer here. Solomon's passed, and so Jeroboam comes back on the scene. He's part of that whole divide of of the two and the ten And then Jeroboam is going to, at the beginning of his reign, he's got his ten tribes. He's going to strengthen some key cities. And then then we see national idolatry take point right after that. First Kings will be in chapter 12 this morning. Chapter 12, and, and we'll start reading in verse 26. It says, Jeroboam thought to himself, The kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem... They will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to the king and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, and the other he set up in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship with one. Uh, worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Let's pray as we ask God to teach us this. Our Father God, we ask this morning that you would help us to understand what it is that happened in the heart of Jeroboam, what it happened in in the heart of the people, that we can be a people who, who can be tough and be confident, who can be resilient, God, because we trust in you, and, and we don't live in fear, and we don't bow to, to ease and to comfort, but we look to say, you are my king, and so what does it mean for me to serve you in, in a land where, where we tend to look to a human king to be everything we want? We ask you that in your son's name. Amen. 
Uh, earlier this week, I was on the phone with one of my friends who's another pastor in an evangelical free church, and uh, his name's Josh Ott. Josh is a great guy um, and j- just a real heart for the Lord. And Josh and I were talking about preaching and how we can communicate in a way that's just as, as effective as we can. And, uh, and he was talking about something that he feels like we always have to keep in front of us. And he said, it's this idea of transparency, where we need to be open, where we as preachers need not to send this message that we've got it all figured out and you can come and you can be like us and then your life will be perfect. No, we're on a journey together. He talked about this need to be transparent. He talked about how recently he, uh, he opened up in a sermon about what he struggles with called imagined fear. Imagined fear is this idea where, where something might go wrong or something could go wrong and we live as if it's a reality. Like so, so imagine fear is if is say say something starts to hurt, your knee starts to hurt, and then then you do what any American with internet access does. You Google it. And you begin to to see what it could possibly be. And, and maybe, uh, maybe it starts out as like ACL or meniscus, and then, then it goes on to blood clot, or, or, or what, and it just it keeps getting worse. And, and if you're anything like Josh or anything like myself, because as he talked about this, I found myself right there with him, you start to imagine the fear, but fear the fear, fear as if it's not imagined. You start to experience it as if it's real. And I've had my share of medical ailments in my life, but I've also had my share that I've imagined, more than I'd care to admit, where I had x-ray done or a scan done because I thought, I thought, and I felt, and I felt. But we, we do this. It's not, ju- it's not just this. It's, it, it's any, any area of life. We're prone to imagined fear. What happens if my kids do this? What about my spouse? What about, what's going to happen with my job? And we live in this realm of imagined fear, and it, it really controls and shapes the, the way that we go about life and the things that we do and the decisions that we make. Jeroboam is a victim of imagined fear. And it really comes down to this one simple word where he leads an entire nation down a path of idolatry, and the word is if. If. If these people... If they go back to Jerusalem to worship, to fulfill their religious duties, if they go back there, you know what? I know what's going to happen. They're going to get used to going back there. They're going to be around people that they used to know. They're going to they're see a different king who might be more kind or more benevolent or might, might have more resources. If, if they do that, the kingdom will likely revert. Likely, likely go back to Rehoboam and leave me. And he lives and he leads a nation based on imagined fear. I've used this phrase a couple times throughout this series that if we tie our hope to something, if we tie our hope to something. And I was thinking about this and, and, and the American cinematic classic National Lampoon's Vacation uh, with Chevy Chase, and there's this image that keeps coming to my mind, which would never appear in a movie today, where uh, Clark, Chevy is, is Chevy is Clark, and Clark has to take Aunt Edna's mean dog, Dinky, um, t- t- somewhere else, and they stop along the road, and, and Clark ties the dog to the, to the bumper, and you know where this is going. Uh, miles later, Clark gets pulled over by a straight trooper who holds the leash up. 
without the dog. Like, if we tie our hopes to things in life, to imagined fear, I don't know where it's going to take you, but it won't be good. It'll just pull your hope along. And I, I am fighting for you to have hope that is tied to Jesus Christ and his word. You cannot continue to live as if imagined fear is reality. You'll have none of the stability that the scriptures speak of in life. Jeremiah, Jeremiah talks about this. He says, he says, the man who follows after God is like a tree planted by streams of living water. What happens? What happens to that tree? That even in seasons of drought, it produces fruit. In other words, that even if the imagined, the drought becomes real, even if it's actual and it's right there and you're feeling, feeling, experiencing a literal drought, fruit continues to come because you're not connected. Your hope, your source is not based on this, this experience that's out here in the world. It's based on Jesus Christ. That's the stability the scriptures offer. Imagine fear can't offer you any, any of it at all. The, the ironic thing is this is, this is an incredibly ironic thing to even be dealing with at this point. Because if we backtrack, right, so we've got Jeroboam, who, who, he's king. So before, before he does this, before he fortifies the cities, before he even becomes king, like go back, re rewind even further than when he escaped Solomon in Egypt, rewind back to the days where he's in charge of the northern ten tribes, just happily working under, underneath Solomon. God actually sends a messenger, a prophet, to Jeroboam, and he tells him something. He talks to him about an if that isn't the if that, that Jeroboam lives under. If the other people, if the things that I can't control. God gives Jeroboam a prophecy based on an if that Jeroboam can control. Look at it in verse 38 of chapter 11. God says this, If you do whatever I command, and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and, and commands as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and I will give you Israel. What a fascinating thing to think about. Here you've got Jeroboam and he's standing in front. He's looking at his people and he's thinking, if they worship, or if they go down to Jerusalem, then, then my kingdom will fall apart. My life will probably be over. He's looking at the wrong if. He's looking at an if of imagined fear instead of looking at an if of what God had promised. God said, Jeroboam, if you follow after me, I will take care of it all. I have all the details planned out. You will have... I mean, what a promise that to, to, to give Jeroboam a legacy of a dynasty like David. Jeroboam, all you have to do is follow after me and keep my commands. Don't worry about solving problems outside of obedience to me. Worry about solving the problems within the realm of obedience to me. I will work out the rest. I will see to it. I will see to your kingdom, and you will be blessed in a way that is absolutely incredible. All you've got to do is follow after me and keep your morality in check. You see, you, what, what God does is he turns the if into a certainty. 
And you can live one of two ways. You can live in the imagined fear, or you can live in the calculated promises of God. I use calculated specifically because there's no, there's no if about what's going to happen when God's in charge. He understands exactly how he's going to move pieces. And so many of us have been there. I look at something as simple as God orchestrating, bringing me to a place right, right here where I can share God's word with you this morning. And I think I couldn't possibly have worked this out. It was calculated by God. And Jeroboam is, is trying to plan all this out. And, and God's just saying, let me orchestrate. You walk. Let me plan. You follow. That's how this works. You get a dynasty if you get that right. The promise of God will always be more calculated than imagined fear. The promises of God will always be more calculated than imagined fear. Jeroboam is looking at the moment. God's looking at a dynasty. Jeroboam's looking for now. God's looking for centuries. Jeroboam wants to deal with an obstacle. God wants to move mountains. What, do you, what, what does imagined fear deal with except for what's right here? And God is working above it all. And Jeroboam's trying to solve a problem, and God's going, you don't even understand the problem. You don't see it. You just need to see me and walk with me and watch what I can do. And what Jeroboam does is Jeroboam, he institutes this idolatry. We'll talk about why, why it's so successful in a little bit. He institutes this idolatry, and what he does is he brings a multitude of problems along with it. Like He, he, he removes one obstacle, but 30,000 others show up. Why? Because it's imagined fear instead of the calculated promise of God. You, you've got to take your heart somewhere. Which one do you tie your hope to? Do you tie it to to imagine fear is like tying it to the bumper of a 1970s station wagon. you got no idea where they're going. You can tie it to the calculated promises of God. What can man do to me if I trust in God? That's where our heart needs to be reminded again and again and again. But so, so what Jeroboam does, I, I want us to see this, his, his heart is all about himself. It's not about God. It's not, it's not about what can I do to... to bring them to God. It's, it's how can I keep them to keep me in a place where I want to be? And what he does is he falls prey to something that just about every human king that fails, um, even you could go down the line. You could go down the line of the book of the kings and every evil king, they would, they would do the same thing. They fought a battle for the wrong allegiance. They fought a battle for the wrong allegiance. It was about People loving them, supporting them, keeping them in power. Instead of, look at God. Look at who he is. Look at what he can do. And that should not surprise us. Because as we started this series, we went back to Deuteronomy 17. We looked at how, how a human being in that position of king will be prone to struggles with popularity, with power, with pleasure, with prosperity. We, you, you name it, that's going to be their struggle. And what he does is he takes this position of authority and uses it to guard those things for himself. Now, if you want to be really wise, if we just kind of take a step aside from the Search for a King series right now, if you want to be a wise person, you understand that any human being, not just in king, but any human being in any position of authority faces those same struggles. Be it if you're a boss and you have employees under you, or if you're a parent and you've got kids under you, 
if you're a spouse and it's a power play, we will use positions of authority in a way to manipulate for ourselves. And the allegiance won't be, you should fight for what's good for God. It'll be, you should fight for what's good for man. I saw this the other day myself. And this isn't necessarily a wrong thing, but I just saw this temptation where, where I was looking at my, my house and um, the kids had done what kids do to a house where they left it looking torn apart. And, and I was looking around thinking, this is just an absolute mess. And, and one of my kids came up to me and said, Dad, can I play video games for a little bit longer today? And I looked at the mess, and I looked at him, and I looked at the video games, and I thought, I can solve this without having to do anything myself. I said, I'll tell you what, you clean this room up, and I'll give you another five minutes. And, and I know you could say, well, that's good, that's teaching him. But there was something within my heart that was trying to escape doing something, and me in a position of power saw how I could leverage it for myself. I think if we're honest, we all see that ability. Now, let's say you're king, and all of a sudden, Everybody could do something for you. And the temptation is amplified thousands of times. It's not a position for the faint of heart. And Jeroboam's heart faints quickly as he makes it all about himself. It's really quite in stark contrast to the life of Jesus. Where Jesus, if you notice something, is offered things again and again to promote himself. Satan offers him the world. Satan offers him the world. And, and, and then you've got the crowds when Jesus rides in on the donkey and they offer him the throne. And you've got Peter who offers him freedom in a revolt. And you've got Pilate who offers him innocence. And then you've got soldiers at the cross who offer him a drink to numb the pain. And every time Jesus is offered something, he does not choose that which is best for himself. He chooses that which is best for his followers. And as our heart looks for a king, that's really what you want. A king who will say, how about I choose you over me? In a world with leaders who constantly are tempted with, what about me, what about me? A king who says, what about you, is powerful and loving. And that's exactly what the scriptures offer us in Jesus Christ and exactly why our heart needs to be tied to him, our hope needs to be tied to him because he's the only one who can offer what we fully desire. This series, however, is not just about rulers. It's about followers as well. And, and I need us to see something here because there's something profound. If you think about this, you've got the nation of Israel who, who has a history steeped in following God and the law and, and, all, and, and all these miraculous things. And you say, how in the world did this guy become king and in literally weeks he gets the whole nation to live in idolatry? How does that happen? How do, I mean, he, I, okay, he goes from zero to 60 that fast, but I, at least they could you know, hop out of the car or something. Like, why, why, why did his particular brand of evil, why was it so appealing that so many people would fall so quickly, so, so deeply, why? Well, let's look at it. Let's look at what Jeroboam does where it doesn't take long for this to gain acceptance. We already read it. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves, and he said to the people, is it too much for you to go up to Jerusalem? That little statement right there. Is it 
too much for you. Isn't it too much? Hey, think about this, guys. You're going to have to, you're going to have to go all the way down to Jerusalem. Do you know what, the, who's going to watch your kids? Are you going to take them with you? What about, what about work? How are you going to make money for this? You're going to go all the way down there? You're going to, you're going to leave your home for, for all this time to travel? What about the fact that this is dangerous? What's the weather going to be like? I got you. I know you could go all the way, but I am the great King Jeroboam. I'll just make you temples right here. I'll just, I, look, I'll just make idols for you right here. Why don't you worship them? Because it's too much for you. Jeroboam is successful at what many kings before him and what many kings after him had done where he found a way to appeal to comfort and convenience. And he rose to power and he stayed in power because of it. Comfort and convenience. Look, if we're honest, if we look at the the lesson of the northern ten tribes, the real king is not Jeroboam. The real king is that the people chose to worship comfort and convenience. That they would do whatever it took to keep those things in line. That, that, that they would find those things and, and have it guarded for them. I, I want to be honest with you. If comfort and convenience are king, they will not just rule you, they will ruin you. But the ruin will not be a ruin of, distraction, or of, uh, of destruction or a ruin of despair. It will be a ruin of distraction. Where you forget what's most important. And comfort and convenience reign as king. And you forget about the sacrifices that, that God has called us to to follow after him. We'll let secondary battles become primary battles. And we'll fight them as if they're more important. And the ruin will be a ruin of distraction. That I forget why God has me here. That I forget what I'm called to. And I focus on the luxuries of what I'm not called to. As I, as I thought through this, there's a line that kept coming up to me again and again that, that, that so much of this is about luxury and lifestyle. Luxury and lifestyle. And if I can have those things, then I'll be happy. My wife is a teacher, and, and about 10 years ago, she was uh, at a teacher's union meeting, and they were talking about the teachers having to take a pay cut. And one of the teachers stood up and said, I'll never take a pay cut. We can't take a pay cut, because if we do, I'll have to give up my lifestyle. And I'm not willing to not have a maid come clean for me. I'm not picking on that individual. I'm, I'm just stating something that I think underrides much of the tone of a nation of luxury. Don't take from me what I like, and I'll be happy. We have to be aware of what God teaches us and what he calls us to. Because Jesus Christ does not call us to pursue a life of comfort and convenience. And what the scriptures do is they present us with the challenge of here's the king so great. He's everything that you could ever want. He's everything that you could ever long for. If you, if you put your heart in his hands, it'll be the safest and the happiest and the healthiest that it's ever been. But he will not give you comfort and convenience every time you want it. And in fact, to follow him, there will be many times when you need to let go of those things in order to follow him. Where you say, God, I will follow you. I will forgive, I will forgive the offender when it's not comfortable. God, I will love the person who is needy when it's not convenient. I think of some of the times in my life where God has called me 
to love someone who is dirty and smells bad. And I think of the sacrifice that it takes for me to love that individual. But I think of the idea of, is my king worth following in that moment? Is he worth sacrificing for? Is he worth giving of myself for? I think one of the greatest challenges in a nation of of luxury is to allow yourself to be led in a way that calls you to live outside of comfort and convenience. To say, God, I'm willing to follow you, even if it means it is too much for me. Even if it means I've got to travel and I've got to make plans and I've got to sacrifice. I'm willing to do it because you are that king that I will serve. And comfort and convenience are not my true kings. The Jesus of the scriptures in no way stands in second place to comfort and convenience. I fear sometimes we make him too small and we let him stand in the background of life and let him be lesser than what my ideals are in life. And what the scriptures do is they present a God who is far greater than that. We're gonna be a church, we're gonna be a church that says, God, we wanna follow you even at cost to comfort and convenience. We wanna follow you even in those places. I'm, Connor mentioned November 22nd, we've got this serve day where we're gonna do things for Operation Christmas Trap. We're also gonna do an outdoor pantry by Southside Elementary School to give food to families in need. I have no idea how that's gonna go. I don't know if there's gonna be 10 people or if there's gonna be 200 people. I just know it sounds like something our king wants us to do. I think it's gonna be cool for us to love people who are in need because I think that's what our God wants us to do. What the scriptures do is they call us to worship Jesus Christ who stands supreme above comfort and convenience and to worship him in all ways, in all places, at all times, at all costs. And what Jude, I love the way Jude summarizes in Jude 25, it it, it points out the reality of who this king is. How he is what your heart wants. Your heart doesn't want to just exist in luxury until you're not here anymore. But your heart wants to have an allegiance to Jesus Christ. He says this, To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. And Paul comes along to the church of Corinth in a society much like ours. And in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present to you, might, might present you as a pure virgin to him. That we would be so loyal and chaste to him that our allegiance to him would be unquestionably different than an allegiance to anybody or anything else in this world. That as Paul says in Philippians, I look at everything else and it's garbage, it's trash compared to him and his love. That's where our heart needs to be. We've got our king. Let's set our allegiance right. As the worship team comes up, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to end this series. We're going to wrap this series up by taking communion together. Hey, if you're home and you want to join us, and we love you and we're glad. We miss you, but we're happy that you're worshiping with us. As we take communion, that sort of bridges some of this gap where we do something together in order to honor the one who is our true, true king. I had uh, the opportunity this week to sit down with a young man who is, uh, he leads the, the Penn State InterVarsity International Bible Study. And we as, we as a church have been trying to 
partner with Penn State InterVarsity. It's been cool to have some of their students show up to different things. Um, so I, I met this young man and just felt the Spirit of God was working and doing cool things in his life. And so I, his name's Daniel, and I said, Daniel, I'd like to buy you lunch. I just want to hear your story. And, and Daniel shares his testimony of how he came to fight. We're, we're going to try and get it on a podcast for you. Um, but w- w- the point that I wanted to get to is we've got this young, brilliant man with a great heart for Jesus Christ. And I ask him the question, it's like, man, from an outsider perspective, as a man of faith, like, what is your thoughts on everything that's going on in our country right now? And he thought for a minute, and he offered such a profoundly deep analogy, analysis of, of our country and what we're going through. And he said, he said, what we see from people outside the country looking in is that Americans tie their ideologies, what they believe, how they think the world should be, they tie their ideologies to their identity. That you don't just believe something, but you are something. It's not, I think this should, or I think that should. It's, I am pro, or I am anti. As we spoke, what became apparent is that is what we do. That our ideologies are not just the things that we think and believe, but they are who we are. Our identity as followers of Jesus Christ is just that. A follower of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That's what defines us. We are servants of the King. And those are the things that need to be most descriptive of who we are at all times. And so by no means do we let an idol take the throne of the country because we let him have too much of our hope. By no means do we buy into the divisiveness and slander when our true king wants love and compassion. Our identity is shaped not by our ideology. Our identity is shaped by our Savior, Jesus Christ. You have these communion packets. I, I want you to go ahead and take it and, and open them up. What happens right now has more to do with your identity than any political movement that will ever take place in history. Because our king didn't just stand up and make claims. Our king went to a cross. And at the Last Supper, he took the bread. He said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, After the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 11 and speaking about their identity and and their hope. and, And he says this, of Jesus. He quotes Jesus. He says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Where one day he will take his place on the throne right in front of your eyes. And every bad king will be of no consequence anymore. And your heart will fully rest and then entirely devoted allegiance to him. And he will rule and he will reign as we've always wanted. Our God and our Father, we thank you that your son Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. I pray, Lord, that we would not be distracted by the calls of comfort and convenience, but we would be devoted to you and whatever you call us to. Because, Jesus, you are worth our full allegiance. Amen.